Welcome, you're listening to Energy 360, a podcast produced by the CSIS Energy and National Security Program. I'm Sarah Ladislaw. I'll be your host for today's discussion of ongoing cyber threats to the U.S. power system and what should be done about them. I'm joined today by Jim Lewis, who is Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program at CSIS, along with Bill Hederman, Senior Associate in the CSIS Energy and National Security Program, and also a Senior Fellow at the Kleinman Center on Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Needless to say, cyber attacks on U.S. and global energy infrastructure are not new, but the last several years we've witnessed a heightened awareness of these attacks in the U.S. and in other places like Ukraine. Uh, in there's some increasing pressure in Congress and within different federal agencies to uh, address some of these longstanding vulnerabilities. Before we get into what can be done and can't be done to address these issues, I wanted to do some level setting here. So, Bill, you worked on these issues during your time at the U.S. Department of Energy. Can you start by characterizing the nature of the U.S. power system and the vulnerabilities that we face? Sure. The The power system, as we we'll tend to think about it today, is the North American electric power grid. So it's beyond the U.S. Uh, Canada is totally integrated, and Mexico is integrated along the borders. The, the power system has a bunch of different sources of fuel, and uh, when we think about the system in the context of cybersecurity, we tend to think about the natural gas pipeline grid also as part of the power system because it's another network that can be attacked in a cyber way. So I think that's what we're talking about. Uh, a big shift that's happened since we were doing the quadrennial energy review is in the first phase of the quadrennial review, we thought about, well, how does the U.S. respond to the change, the turnabout in production of oil? We don't have nearly the same threat from an oil disruption that we had in the past. And in the course of the second phase of the QEO, I think DOE came to realize our biggest national threat in the energy area now is disruption of the power system rather than disruption of the oil deliveries. So disruption to things like power generation units and transmission infrastructure and distribution all the way down to kind of the household level. Yes. Hmm. And it's important to realize, and I'm sure Jim will get into this, when you're thinking about a cyber attack, you may come in from the smallest entry point as opposed to saying, well, we're attacking a generator, we got to attack that plant. You can get to it a lot of different ways. Jim, you're one of the nation's leading authorities on cybersecurity. You've helped- When did that happen? (laughs) You've helped craft strategies for dealing with these issues across a range of domains. How do you think people should think about the cybersecurity realm and the kind of vulnerabilities that Bill just laid out? How serious are they? How new are they? They're not particularly new, and so the the electrical grid, the power grid, has been a target in warfare going back to its invention, and a normal part of uh, either a large conventional war or an insurgency is to to blow these things up, right? So longstanding target. The difference is that probably about mm, 
let's say, 15 years ago, people discovered that you could cause damage uh, remotely through cyber action, through cyber operations by injecting commands sent remotely that would cause the infrastructure, various parts of the infrastructure to self-destruct or to disrupt service. So we've had this in the toolkit now for probably a little more than a decade. Um, you get into who can do it. Uh, and the point about how there's many entry areas, many entry points, is, is the important one. Um, if your goal is to destabilize uh, power supply, uh, you don't need to have physical disruption. There's the, the classic example that I think has been addressed to some extent is the 2003 Northeast blackout. In that case, it was moose and squirrel. Uh, <laughs> but in future, it could be someone else. And the question is, who is that someone else? Right now, uh, we know that um, two or three of our most likely opponents have probed the electrical grid, uh, Russia, Iran, and I believe China. Uh, Russia and Iran are the most active. Uh, they have the capability, particularly the Russians, to cause disruption at any level they wish. And it was the Russians, of course, who were responsible for the um, attacks in the Ukraine. Um, that said, there is a constraint on their behavior, which is that um, were they to do something significantly disruptive and the United States would uh, be able to identify them as the perpetrators, they would risk some sort of violent retaliation. And that's a risk they're unwilling to take. So the part that we want to watch is how about groups that are harder to deter. Um, the original thinking about cybersecurity was that uh, terrorist groups would attack critical infrastructure. Um, it's been 25 years. That's never happened. Um, the current array of terrorist groups uh, does not have the capability. The question is, uh, could that change in the future, and are we prepared for such a change? Mm. I want to get back to the points that you make on Russia in, uh, in just a minute, because I think it's important uh, for thinking about within the context of how to consider cyber threats relative to other kinds of interference and, and how we're kind of um, putting all of those issues together into one basket. One of the things that I think is uh, often talked about, but no one really knows if they have full information about, is how well industry and government are grappling with these challenges. There have been reports that came out, I think, over the course of the Obama administration and anecdotal studies that'll come out or examples that'll come out of attacks or missing information, data breaches, things that have occurred within the electric power system that will cause these flare-ups in concern about whether government and industry really are dealing with these um, security threats or whether or not we just were getting lucky. H how well, from your perspective, and maybe we'll start with Bill, is government and, and government and industry tackling these vulnerabilities and being prepared for them and thinking about responding to them? Yeah, that's a, a tough question to answer quickly, but I think that there's an effective public-private partnership at this point, mostly uh, focused through the electricity uh, subsector coordinating council, which is a group that 
is basically uh, run by industry leaders uh, through the national associations, DHS and DOE. And DOE is nominally the, uh, the leader in the energy subsector. That uh, seems to be effective at communicating threats. It's, it kind of works at two levels. There's a, a very small group that has high clearances and is getting full briefings, and then a larger group that's a little on the unwieldy side is probably 70 to 100 people, and uh, it, those are almost like public meetings but it's communicating the seriousness of the issue, I think, and getting people to know each other. And it's real important to know who you call when you start dealing with one of these because you're not going to have time to do it. Um, whether it's successful, I guess the proof in, is in the pudding that we haven't had a blackout yet or not a significant one. And that's a good thing, but it's through, uh, if you will, defense in layers, and there's definitely been penetration, but it it appears to be caught in time, but you don't know about the one you didn't catch, too. So, Jim, how well are we doing? So it depends who you talk to, and if you talk to uh, industry groups, they say we're doing pretty well. Uh, if you talk to hackers, they say they can still get in. Um, and I think the latter is probably true. Things are much better than they were 10 years ago, so we're a much harder target than we were at the start of this movie. But uh, an advanced opponent, of whom we have a few, uh, would probably be able to defeat our defenses. And that leads you back to the deterrence discussion, which is when would they calculate it was worth doing. Um, there's been probes by private actors, but they don't seem to have either been able to get into the control systems or to have known exactly what they were doing. So still a relatively low-level threat. but. I think that's, you want to think of it not as a yes or no, but as a scale. High-end opponents can still uh, cause damage should they choose to do so. Um, Low-end opponents, I think there's been good work at making it harder for them. Are there technological advancements either on the um, cyber warfare side of the equation or on the protection and detection and um rebuild or, or resilient side of the equation that are changing this dynamic? Or is it really about sort of intent and warfare and response? A difficult question to answer, but the one that I would look for is that if if anything, change, technological changes maybe made us a little more vulnerable. So when you look at the Ukrainian incidents, the Ukrainians were able to restore service for a variety of reasons, but one of them was they still had uh, manual backup. And so as we automate, which is in everyone's economic interest, um, we lose that capability to uh, go to a manual backup system. And I think that's where um, risk could be increased by technological change. Yeah, I, I think there's um, something of a change in sentiment at the federal level in thinking about this in terms of uh, it isn't that more technology is always a help. I think that's been demonstrated. You mentioned Ukraine's experience, and that's been, in a way, the natural gas pipeline's posture. Well, we're safer because Joe still has to get in the pickup truck and go out and turn the valve. And uh, 
I, my sense is that research is starting within the federal complex to start to think about finding just the right level of intelligence to gain the economic benefits, but cut the complexity to make the system more secure. And it's kind of coming up with that Goldilocks level of intelligence. We got to get this right, and it's not go for everything you can get. Mm -hmm. You both brought up uh, Russia and Ukraine and the incident in 2015. Jim, you wrote a commentary recently, which was really useful, uh, about sort of thinking about Russia uh, and uh, <laughs> and their option uh, to, uh, to disrupt the U.S. electric power system or other uh, critical infrastructure through cyber attacks. Can you talk about, um, you did a little bit already, but talk about how one should think about how the Russians might be thinking about the utilization of that weapon and how they weigh their options uh, relative to what their capabilities are. I believe we now have enough experience to say that uh, the most capable actors, which are nation states, treat uh, cyber operations as they would any other mode of attack. So there's differences. Of course, one is it's faster, uh, it's relatively cheaper, um, the payload can be less destructive, uh, and there's the hope uh, that you'll be invisible, although most of our opponents believe that they're not invisible when it comes to operating in the U.S., and that's probably a good assumption for them. Um, so you have this uh, a new kind of attack mode that has different characteristics, and people have a portfolio and say, well, I could, I could shoot a cruise missile, I could send in a Spetsnet team, um, you know, they had uh, caches of uh, explosives and guns during the Cold War for sabotage purposes. I could reactivate one of them, although I personally wouldn't want to touch an explosive that's been buried for 30 <laughs> years. You could, you could launch a nuclear strike, right? So the Russians have had the options to, uh, options to cripple the power grid for decades, and they've just added a new one, right? Uh, that's part of why they continue to do reconnaissance you know, to map out potential vulnerabilities should they choose to attack. But they'll make that decision, and the same is true for Iran or for North Korea or for China. They're, they're rational, albeit it might be based on different calculations of rationality than we use. And they think, when does the benefit of such an attack outweigh the risk of a, of a U.S. retaliation? And so the idea that there's the potential to do something that would be very disruptive to the U.S. electric power sector without fear of consequence is not realistic. You'd have to have an opponent who was willing to take that risk. And, of course, the the most um, – I don't know if they're a non-state actor or not. They're sort of in a gray area. The most advanced is uh, Hezbollah. Hezbollah gets direct support from Iran in improving its cyber capabilities. And they practice on a weekly basis with the Iranians uh, in targeting Israeli critical infrastructure. But so far, they have been unable to cause any major disruptions. But when I look for somebody who might be willing to take the risk, might be more willing to take the risk than our traditional opponents, uh, I think about Hezbollah as the one where intent and capability intersects. Bill, you spent some time when you were at DOE working with Ukraine uh, and with the U.S. government on uh, cyber issues as they relate to Ukraine. What Did we learn anything from that experience, and is there still ongoing cooperation? 
Yeah, I think that uh, there's still cooperation. I spent a couple of months in country there. Uh, first month was before, second was after the uh, cyber attack. And uh, I, I think what's very important is to remember that Ukraine is a very advanced country technologically. It's, it's not some backwards uh, segment of Europe. And the fact that they were penetrated, I think, shows a, a, a real capability that we need to worry about. Uh, to pick up on Jim's point about who could do it and what their risk calculation is, I think the U.S. posture has very intentionally said a major cyber attack could be considered for physical response uh, because we have to keep the stakes high here. Uh, it's very sad that we've moved into the state of what I think of as a hidden war uh, between nation states again. I think many of us thought that we had gone beyond that. And the, I think the big danger there is the possibility of uh, people feeling that they can maintain their anonymity. And I, I think if somebody gets brazen enough, and again, we've seen a troubling example in the UK around this, that if you can claim that you may be more brazen in what you try. And, and the other side of it is, uh, in addition to, say, Hezbollah, we've seen what an anonymous has done, et cetera. There could be uh, other groups that will decide, well, I am going to do something to help my country without the country authorizing it. There's a lot of slippery slopes here, and we got to be uh, concerned about it. So the DOE just announced the creation of uh, the Office of Cybersecurity and Emergency Response. The Secretary of Energy has been going around talking about uh, how the number one concern for the agency is uh, is cybersecurity and the threats to the nation's power system in particular. What could a new office do? Uh, is this uh, just more of the same sort of bureaucratic efforts or um, – is there something concrete that, that perhaps they could do, or, or government as a whole, if there's something that the U.S. should be doing that it's not? What would you guys recommend, Bill? Well, so probably the most important thing is bureaucratic, that by having an assistant secretary for cyber at DOE, uh, the DOE will be signaling that it's a different level of concern. And, and that's both symbolic and it will affect the resources. And I think the congressional response has been pretty supportive. So I think that's helpful. Uh, hopefully it doesn't lead to some kind of DHS versus DOE uh, conflict at the bureaucratic level. It's always a possibility. But uh, having people who know about the energy systems worrying about the cyber threat is a helpful thing, I think. No, I think that's right. Uh, slowly, the realization has dawned on many places that you cyber activities are integral to all of their operations. I was at a meeting earlier today where it was non-tech companies who said basically – you know, we have we're actually tech companies who happen to bend metal on the side, or we're a tech company that has a banking license. So, 
as this becomes more important uh, as the backbone of business, basically, I think we will need to rethink how we organize ourselves in the U.S. As usual, we're doing it in a way that is perhaps not the most efficient way. Most other countries have uh, the leading edge now in cybersecurity is to create a single agency with oversight for all the critical infrastructure sectors. Um, we are uh, have been unable or unwilling to do that, so this is a good intermediate step. There is a uh, conflict that the public is largely unaware of, and so far it involves uh, largely reconnaissance efforts by all the major powers who are uh, doing the targeting necessary for attack when the political circumstances uh, warrant such an action. But if you were to look at the uh, level of intrusions by Russia, China, and Iran, they have increased significantly in the past two or three years. Um, if you were Russian, Chinese, or Iranian, what you would say is, what are you people complaining about? You do it to us too? And the answer is, that's right. Um, so we are in a, a new kind of conflict, and um, I don't think the public is quite caught up to that. And it's an escalation of targeting, is what you're saying. People would say that the level of espionage, including cyber espionage, has uh, reached and perhaps surpassed the levels we saw at the height of the Cold War. So this is not... Um, there's a lot of public attention. A lot of the information you get in the media is just wrong, and it's 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 good for entertainment purposes. I think it's great to, you know, I love scary stories, but the reality of the conflict is is something that is, despite all the noise, not particularly well recognized. You've talked a lot about deterrence in this field in particular. Is that something that we're losing? control of or sight of as, as you're starting to see more activity? No, I think, and so people, I used to make fun of deterrence, and it is, uh, there's a tendency to cram this new kind of conflict into old uh, categories, and there's some risk of that. Perhaps a better way to rephrase it is, is a bit more complicated, if you'll permit it. Um, deterrence is changing your opponent's calculation of the risks and benefits of launching an attack. And we need to uh, increase the opponent perception of risk from taking action against the U.S. And I think, unfortunately, this is also not something you see much in the public domain. Most people in the business uh, believe that we will now have to take some sort of retaliatory action against Russia to build a credible threat to deter them from making a mistake and going further. They are a bit squirrely. I mean, um, poisoning somebody in the UK, that's twice now. That's a bit weird. Um, they could miscalculate. So you want to send them a message, and that won't probably involve hitting them over the head with a two-by-four. Uh, do not do this again. So look, whether or not this administration reaches that point, I believe they're on the glide path to reach the point where we will have to take action against Russia. And do you think that there's anything industry companies can and should be doing to prepare for an environment like that? No, I think that uh, that's where that work that has been done at energy and in the electrical industry in hardening the defenses has been been useful. There's a question of how how effective they would be against a truly 
well-resourced and determined attacker, but they've definitely made it a harder target. But at the end of the day, this kind of uh, diplomatic and military activity is uh, the reserve of governments. Bill, anything you want to add to that? Well, on that point, I think that uh, there is the electric uh, infrastructure is so critical that it's hard to see how you give it the adequate defense without involving the military. And the military doesn't want to step into the operations of industry, and industry doesn't want the military to either. But you know, I've heard the example that if you look at how the defense of the grid would work today, it would be as if TWA and Pan Am Airlines had to have their own fighter jets and the military would call them up and say some Russian f planes are coming towards your civilian airliners, uh, we're letting you know. But that's the level of the military involvement. Well, well they would say, we're letting you know, and good luck. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, so that's, I don't think, where we want to be if we think the danger is greater than it is today. But nobody has a strategy in mind for where to take that next. Um, on, on a somewhat different point, I, I do think that we're making technological progress now on, on the defensive side, um, and that will change the calculations as well. I think uh, blockchain, the cloud, uh, advanced encryption are all technological ways to make progress. And within these cooperative groups, the education about basic computer hygiene is taking away the low-hanging fruit. And uh, so, I mean, I think we're making progress. When the Internet was set up, you know, I think the founders would be the first to say, we intentionally kept security out. We wanted it open. And as we've learned that can be a bad thing, we're starting to get the responses. And I feel like uh, American ingenuity is delivering some now and hopefully more. Well, I just want to say thanks to both of you for sharing your thoughts with us on this topic. It'll certainly be one that we will revisit. Uh, again, I'm Sarah Ladislaw, and you've been listening to Energy 360.